Hi, this is Carol from Beyond the Grave. No, just kidding. I just added this into the podcast episode. I want your stories. Next Monday, I'm doing my Halloween special and I want your true ghost stories and paranormal encounters. Send them to IamAlorac at gmail.com. That's I am E-L-O-R-A-C at gmail.com. You can send written stories or just record a voice recording and send that to me. Everything is welcome. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Craft, where we discuss all things craft related. I'm Carol Wood and I'll be talking about books, writing, the paranormal and magical traditions, as well as giving you seasonal recipes, craft projects and more. So last week we had some technical difficulties and the first section didn't go out on air, so I'm bringing it to you now instead. I want to talk a little bit about traditions and correspondences associated with the harvest season and Samhain. We start to draw in this time of year, turning inward to contemplation and conserving our energy. At least that's our natural inclination, but the modern world has made it difficult to follow our innate energy patterns. I don't know about you, but between now and Christmas is always an extremely busy time for me. So it's important to find time to pause, take stock and enjoy the bounties of the season. For me, this means cooking autumnal recipes, sitting by the fire reading fall-themed books or watching TV, and going for walks in the forest, crunching through all those lovely leaves, and doing a little foraging as well. Food features heavily in autumn and sound correspondences, and cooking is a great way to connect with the season. The energy provided by these foods is grounding, earthy, and provides rich sustenance for the coming winter. Starchy vegetables like pumpkins, all kinds of squash, such as butternut and acorn squash, if you can get it, is delicious. Turnips, carrots, potatoes, most root vegetables in fact. Apples, pears, corn, most types of grain and many nuts and seeds are all in season now. Herbs that correspond to Samhain are rosemary, sage, thyme and mugwort. But be careful with mugwort, it's best to consult a herbal practitioner or a doctor before you attempt to use it especially if you have any medical conditions. It's often taken as a tea or a tincture, and it's reputed to have many health benefits, but there are side effects and possible allergic reactions, so just be warned. Magically speaking, mugwort is used to facilitate certain dream and meditative states. It can enhance lucid dreaming and help with astral projection, as well as protect you from nightmares, and it's also associated with psychic or prophetic dreaming. As for rosemary, thyme and sage, I use them liberally in the kitchen. They go beautifully in autumnal recipes. It's difficult to find fresh sage leaves unless you grow the plant yourself, but the dried herb is sufficient for most dishes. But if you can get some fresh sage, the leaves are amazing fried in a little butter until crispy and then used as a topping, especially with pasta dishes and casseroles, things like that. Spices associated with the season include cinnamon and clove, and of course, pumpkin spice, which is really simple to make yourself. All you have to do is mix three tablespoons of cinnamon with two teaspoons of ground ginger, two teaspoons of nutmeg, one and a half teaspoons of allspice, and one and a half teaspoons of cloves. Store in an empty spice container or a clean jar. I use this in lots of recipes and drinks, such as pumpkin spice flavored coffee, or in warm milk with honey, sprinkled on root vegetables before I roast them, in a vegetable soup or a stew, or just stirred into some porridge with some maple syrup. It goes with so many sweet and savoury dishes, so feel free to experiment. Oh, and it tastes nothing like those awful fake pumpkin spice lattes you get in coffee shops. I really love pumpkin spice, but I can't stand those. 
It's really nice if you make your own. I started decorating my house for Samhain last weekend. Uh, this time last year I was in Los Angeles doing a semester abroad and I missed all of my traditions, so I'm making up for it this year. I have a wreath decorated with black wool and bats that I made a couple of years ago for the front door. Um, and a while ago I got into decorating pumpkins with paint pens as they last for weeks that way and it's very soothing to, to draw on them. If the pumpkin hasn't rotted by Halloween, you can cook with them afterwards. Just remove the skin first. So there's no waste there at all, which is really nice. A lot of recipes use pumpkin puree, but it's not widely available here. Um, I looked and it's about a fiver for one can online, which is crazy expensive. So I just make my own. For that, you just need undecorated pumpkins. And it's very simple. Just give them a rinse under the tap, dry them off, and then get like a big knife and cut them in half scoop out the seeds and stringy bits and place them cut side down on a greased baking tray that will stop them sticking to the tray. Put that in the oven at about 180 degrees Celsius for about 45 minutes or until tender. It depends on the size of the pumpkin but usually 35 to 45. Then take them out let them cool completely and when they have you can throw them into a food processor or you can use one of those hand blenders to puree them. You can then freeze individual portions in bags or containers and you can use it all year long. Um, you can use it frozen in soups or stews, but it's better to defrost it first. And for baking, it should be completely defrosted and at room temperature. You'll find that um, when you're using the pumpkin puree, I made a pasta dish with it last week and it absorbed so much liquid, like I had to keep adding water to the sauce. Um, so it does absorb a lot of liquid. Um, some other dishes you can make with pumpkin puree include pumpkin spice lattes, of course, and pumpkin pies, cookies, cakes, risotto, pasta, etc. I use two medium pumpkins um, because the large ones don't taste as good. And it made about 1500 grams, which I froze in three 500 gram portions. And as it was cooking, it filled the house with a delicious smell of roast pumpkin, which was a nice added bonus. I'll put some pictures up on Instagram at the craft with Carl. I often find myself drinking more herbal teas this time of year too and um, they're a great alternative when you've filled your caffeine quota for the day and don't want to risk the jitters which is happening to me a lot lately so I'm kind of trying to cut down on the caffeine and doing more teas. Uh, they have so many benefits and they're readily available now even in the supermarkets. It used to be you'd have to go to a health food shop to buy them even though that's still probably the best place to find the more niche teas. You can get some really interesting ones. Another tea I recommend trying is rosehip. The other day I noticed that a wild rose had produced a lot of rosehips outside my house and I went looking for ways to use them. Rosehips are the fruit or seed pod of the rose plant. Almost all roses produce them. In Ireland I tend to see red and orange ones but apparently they can also be purple or black but I've never seen that here anyway. Um, I'd always been told not to eat them and I thought they were poisonous actually, but I was curious so I did some research and found that not, o not only are they edible, but they're good for joint pain and inflammation um, and they're great for your immune system as well. And my knee has been hurting me lately so I thought I'd give the tea a go. You can make the tea from whole fresh or dried rose hips. You can also make rose hip and apple jelly and um, the apples add more sweetness to the jelly. But I thought I'd start out with the tea to see if I liked the taste and because it was a lot simpler. The instruction said to collect four to eight fresh rose hips and steep them in boiling water for 10 minutes in a ceramic container, such as a mug. 
apparently steel discolors them and leaches some of the vitamin C away. So like a, a metal teapot wouldn't be a good idea. And then remove the rose hips from the water with a tea strainer. Add honey, if you like, which I did, and and drink. And it was actually really nice. Um, to eat them as is or use them in recipes, you first need to cut them in half, remove the seeds and rinse them in a colander because the seeds have a hairy, irritating covering. So you need to get rid of that first. And it's best to pick rose hips after the first frost of the season as they are sweeter that way. The day I picked them, we hadn't had our first frost, first frost. <laughs> but Saturday night changed that. Uh, the ones I picked seemed ripe, not too hard and the right color. I tried a little bit of the rose hip just as it was, just fresh, and it tasted sweet and a little bit tart, but really nice. Give the tea a try and marvel at your ability to forage and feel connected to the land. So back to the decorations. I also have some nice ceramic jack-o'-lanterns. Jack-o'-lanterns. Sorry, I can't talk today. <laughs> More on this later. <clears throat> and also ceramic skulls that have coloured flashing lights inside. I prefer them to glow like a candle, so I actually put some battery-operated tea lights inside um, the pumpkins, and it was much nicer. I'm not into flashing lights, even at Christmas. So I set my tree lights to glow or slow, slowly fade in and out. Um, I find it's less distracting. One year I made silhouette cutouts for the windows, which is a super cheap and easy way to decorate. All you need is some thick black paper, which is sometimes called construction paper. You can free draw shapes or print out some contour drawings to trace around if you're not feeling confident with your art skills. I'm not particularly good at drawing, but if you keep the shapes relatively simple, it's fine. Draw whatever shape you're looking for with a pencil or a white marker first, and then just use a decent scissors to cut around it. And then you have decorations you can stick in your windows. It's that simple. It's particularly effective if some of them are large and take up more of the window. Then when it's dark outside and you turn on a light, it will silhouette the scary shapes to anyone outside. I made a headless Victorian lady who was holding her head in her hand. Um, and that, that looked really amazing at, at night. Um, and some bats and crows and other things for the upstairs windows. And then after Halloween, I rolled them up in an elastic band to store them and I got to use them a second year. But it's better if you make them from scratch each time as they get, <clears throat> they tend to get a little bit floppy and they don't kind of flatten out as well after being stored. This year I'll be adding my cinnamon broom that I gave the tutorial for in week one. I'll be adding that to the mix as well. Um, and usually I spend very little on decorations because often some things you have lying around in your imagination can create way better stuff than you can buy in the shops. But I do tend to draw inspiration for Pinterest for my craft projects. Um, I'll be buying some pumpkins for decorating with paint pens too. I usually buy them in the shops, but you can pick your very own pumpkin at some places across Ireland now. In Wexford, in the south of Wexford, there's Ballycross Apple Farm. Um, there's the Tinnahealy Farm Shop in Wicklow, Clonfert Pet Farm in Kildare, Lugwoods Enchanted Forest in Dublin, and I'm sure there's a few more around as well. Um, so this week's paranormal topic is jack-o'-lanterns. Okay, so it's a topic relatively short on information. I searched high and low for the past week, but I kept coming across the same things again and again. Um, I did find a creepy good story about a guy who carves pumpkins, which I'll read if there's enough time, because it is a little on the long side. But in the meantime, I'll share what little research I could dig up, uh, if you pardon the pun. The practice of carving jack-o'-lanterns began in Ireland. Um, everything began in Ireland, don't you know, but particularly anything connected to what we think of as Halloween or Samhain. 
Of course, there were no pumpkins readily available in Ireland until fairly recently. The tradition began with carving turnips, beets and even potatoes so that a small candle could be put inside. The creepy faces that were carved into these root vegetables were used to scare away evil spirits on Halloween night or Samhain. They were placed in windows and near doors so that the face was turned out into the night. When the Irish emigrated to the United States, they found that pumpkins with their large size and soft flesh were perfect for carving even better jack-o'-lanterns. In 1943, the National Museum of Ireland was sent a jack-o'-lantern called a ghost turnip. It was from around 1850. It was found by a schoolteacher near Fintown in County Donegal. A plaster cast was made from it and painted by the museum's artist Eileen Barnes, and it's currently on display at the museum today. Traditions like carving pumpkins and wearing Halloween costumes originated as protection rituals. Dressing in disguise was believed believed to confuse wayward spirits so that they wouldn't recognise the person and pass them by unharmed. Long ago, simply wearing one's clothes inside out or donning a primitive mask was enough to avoid unwanted attention from nefarious spirits. Masks were made from simple things like flower bags, horsehair, wool, cotton and other readily available materials. There is a phenomenon known as ignis fatuus or will-o'-the-wisp which are ghostly lights that appear over bogs and can lead passers-by astray. Scientists explain them away as things like gases such as methane or ball lightning and even bioluminescence. The lights appear as flickering lamps that move further away once approached. You can imagine how dangerous this would be when walking around bogs or marshes in the dark. Some say they are fairies or elemental spirits, but there is another possible explanation for these lights. According to legend, these lights are the result of an interaction between a man called Jack, sometimes known as Stingy Jack, and the devil. The name Jack-o'-lantern is thought to come from the story of this Stingy Jack who managed to trick the devil. There are several variations of the story, but the most common one is that one night the blacksmith Jack, who was said to be drunk, invited the devil to have a drink with him one night. Why he did this, no one knows. However, Jack had no money to pay for the drink, so he convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin to pay the barkeep. The devil did as he asked, but instead of paying for the drinks, Jack pocketed the coin, keeping it next to a silver cross so that the the demon was trapped. After an unknown period of time, and who knows why, he decided to free the devil under one condition, that he wouldn't come after Jack for a full year, and if he died, that he wouldn't claim his soul. The devil, who wanted to be freed, of course, agreed to this bargain. After a year, the devil came after him to settle a score, but Jack convinced him to climb a tree. Uh, The devil is a bit of an idiot in this story. I kind of feel sorry for him. When he was up the tree, Jack carved a cross into the trunk so that the devil was once again trapped. Jack agreed to let him down if he promised to give him another 10 years without any interference on his part. But Jack didn't last 10 years because he died soon after. As he'd been a drunk and a cheat, he was not allowed into heaven. Neither could he go to hell, as the devil kept his bargain not to collect his soul. So Jack was doomed to walk the earth forevermore. The devil, feeling a little sorry for him, again, who knows why, gave him a burning coal to light his way for eternity. Jack carved out a turnip in which to carry the coal, and he has roamed the roads ever since with his little jack-o'-lantern. Okay, so I'm going to read you the story now and it's a very good story okay sorry (laughs) okay so this is called the pumpkin man and it's by john everson and it's actually available for free on his website 
When the lively summer breeze turns deathly chill and the lush emerald leaves of August crumble with autumn age, the pumpkin man comes to town. It happens every year. One day, the gravel lot on the corner of Fifth and Maple is bare, littered only with broken glass and tufts of dandelions and thistle. The next, and the lot is full, covered in gourds of all shapes and sizes. Piles of warty yellow squash tumble next to row after row of well-creased pumpkins, most of them fiery orange, but some still betraying the green veins of a fruit that had been picked just before prime. When word filtered through the school that the pumpkin man had arrived, we got on our bikes and rode straight from school to sea. We went there every day for a month until one night, right after Halloween, we turn our bikes around that corner and find the lot was vacant again littered only with the husks and leavings of gourds gone by. The year I turned 13, we had been anticipating his return for weeks when it finally happened. On the very first day of school, Steve Traskell had said, the pumpkin man will be here soon. One day, early in October, the day finally came. The word whispered its way across the school like fire in a field of browning wheat. I heard it first from Dave in English class and then from Bell in history. By lunch, I'd heard it a dozen times. He's here. The pumpkin man is back. The school day took a month to pass. I watched the minute hand on the homeroom clock move from notch to notch, each minute taking an hour to tick by. When the three o'clock bell rang to announce the day's dismissal, I was already half out of my seat, anticipating its clamour. Billy and Carl were right behind me, and the three of us pushed our way down the crowded hall and out to the bike rack in record time. Going to Maple, Steve asked, racing up behind her little gang. Yeah, I said, not looking up for the combination of my bike lock. Could I go with you guys? If you can keep up, Carl said. He yanked his 10-speed around and stomped the pedal as if he were jump-starting the engine on a motorcycle. Let's go, girls. We were off. The thing about the pumpkin man wasn't that he appeared and disappeared each year with equal mystery and stealth. Nor was it that he brought a thousand globes of orange and yellow for us to take home and carve. You could get a pumpkin at the save-all if you just wanted something to draw a face on. Oh man, Billy whispered as we skidded our back tires around as one and stopped to stare, a gang of four at this year's display. The thing about the pumpkin man wasn't the pumpkins he brought to town, but the faces he carved on his pumpkins. In the midst of the sea of firebright gloves that covered the white gravel of the lot at Fifth and Maple was a long wooden stand. It stood as tall as a man and as long as a house and lining the half dozen shells with its overhang were special pumpkins. Carved pumpkins. Pumpkins with the most evil grins and scowls you've ever seen scored into a gourd. At night he put candles in all of them, and the darkness at the edge of our little town was broken with a horde of devilish teeth and slanted glimmering eyes. It was as if the very door to hell had been opened, and the armies of Lucifer were poised to feast upon our innocent souls. Damn, Carl said, as we stared at the offering for this year. Even in the daylight, the jagged orange rind teeth gave me a shiver. Somewhere, someone was whistling a strangely discordant tune. Twisted as hell, Steve agreed. We stashed our bikes on the side of the lot and stalked forward, eager to get closer to the frightful carvings that seemed to have blown in overnight with the brittle oak leaves. If the days of a stifling sun and cool blue pools were past, then this, was a fine, then this was a fine substitute, we thought. I moved past a row of grinning, leering faces, stopping finally at a particularly evil-looking gourd. Its eyes were almond-shaped, narrow but long, and its teeth leered like daggers waiting to strike. It was a pumpkin with the soul of a rabid rat. Help you, boys? 
Steve pulled his fingers back from touching one of the scowling gourds as if he'd been bit. Just looking, Carl said, answering for all of us. His voice shook a little and I could understand why. The pumpkin man's creations weren't the only creepy thing in this newly filled lot. The pumpkin man himself was a frightening sight to behold. Wisps of ice-white hair curled out from his ears like mist, and his eyes, piercing blue, looked too tight together, as if someone had rolled two blue marbles as close as they could. His lips were pale and long, and his neck was thin as a turkey's. But it was his hands that made you look twice. The pumpkin man strode slowly between us and the pumpkins, and as he did, he trailed one long finger across the green stubs at the top of each gourd. That finger seemed white as a bone, its nail dark as snails. That is a weird line. Okay. See something you like? Ten dollars for any of my babies. He grinned at us then, showing teeth brown as candied molasses. I shook my head and moved away from the display. In years past, I'd never come face to face with the pumpkin man when I'd perused his lot, and now I found he gave me the creeps more than his carvings. Steve, Carl and Billy caught up with me a few minutes later as I wandered around a four-foot pyramid of orange globes. What's the matter, man? Carl asked. We were talking to the pumpkin man back there after he split. He told us some cool shit, like how he models his carvings on animal teeth and people too. Why'd you leave? Just felt like it, I dodged, and soon we were talking again about how cool the carvings were and about which of the hundreds of pumpkins we'd get our moms to come by in the next week. Carl had already picked out one on the edge of the lot based on its totally cool warts. The thing was basically flat on one side and half yellow, but it didn't have a smooth patch of skin on it anywhere. It's a mutant, he boasted. Behind us, the pumpkin man stood, arms folded across his chest, smiling. A mutant, I thought. I didn't go back to the no longer vacant lot at Fifth and Maple for a few days after that. I'm not sure why everyone at school was abuzz with the cool faces the pumpkin man had brought for us to see this year. And there were always new ones. Each day he chose a gourd to create another feral face to replace whatever pumpkins had been purchased from his display. And each new fearsome face was different, unique. He didn't carve from a mould, that was for sure. His imagination was apparently full of haunting, harrowing teeth and eyes. It was probably the second week in October. The nights had come early, full of thick grey clouds, and the trees already seemed skeletal. Their leaves fled with fright at the onset of an early winter. I was bicycling home after Carl's, from Carl's after dinner. It was only seven o'clock or so, but the sky was already devil blue, and I pulled my jacket close as I pedalled around the bend at Fort the Maple. Ahead I could see the glow of candles and the leer of a hundred hungry faces. The twisted patch of the pumpkin man was waiting. I pedalled faster, past houses wreathed in corn stalks and fake spider webs, windows aglow in orange lights. As I reached the lot, I slowed. The row upon row of glowing, fiery gourds lit the darkening fall of night, but did so in stillness. There were no shoppers perusing the pumpkin man's lot, nor a pumpkin man to be seen. I'm not sure what possessed me, but I braked my bike and laid it quietly on the rocks at the front of the lot. Then I walked in between the rows of uncarved, unborn, unborn pumpkin faces until I stood again at display of carved pumpkins, staring at the gourd I'd honed in on the week before. The rat-faced pumpkin. Its teeth still made my skin crawl as I stared into its flickering eyes. Something about it drew me. And despite the goosebumps on my skin, I stood there, alone in the dark, and returned its hellfire gaze. That's when it happened. I jumped five feet in the air. 
The screech had come from just behind the pumpkin trailer and it raised every hair on my head. It sounded like something had died. In front of me, a hundred flickering faces leered, but they stared quietly, unmoving. I looked behind and to the side and saw only the shadows of pumpkin piles. A haze of clouds slid past the moon and even the shadows grew darker. My heart pounded so loud I thought the neighbours must surely hear me from down the street, but I forced myself to creep down the aisle of candle grins to the edge of the makeshift shed. There was a dim light coming from behind the display stand and I quickly saw why. The pumpkin man was carving. On a makeshift table, his hands moved from side to side. A flash of silver cut the air and then the sound came again. The pumpkin was screaming. His blade cut the skin with deft motions. He carved a sliver from the gourd, tossing it to the ground. Again and again he plunged the blade into the pumpkin and each time I heard the noise, though the cries grew weaker. I was rooted to the ground, watching him from behind, his shoulders pumping and swivelling, his body alive with the movement. He dug a long, thin furrow in his creation's mouth and gave a soft cry himself when the knife caught. (coughs) Cried the pumpkin as he brought the knife out and flicked another shard of shiny pulp over his shoulder. A piece bounced across the gravel near my feet. I don't know why, but I couldn't resist. I bent to pick it up. The pumpkin man whistled something then, some off-key tune as I turned the slick skin of the filleted gourd between my fingers. It was gross, sticky, and I dropped it back to the ground and carefully retraced my steps around the corner of the pumpkin display stand. In the light of the flickering, evil pumpkin faces, I held up my sticky fingers and gasped. They were coated in red blood. I turned and ran as hard as I could from the place. I didn't even stop for my bike. Nobody could understand why I wouldn't go on the daily forays to the pumpkin man's displays. The next day, I stopped by the lot just fast enough to retrieve my abandoned bike and then went out with Steve to look for Rusty, his German shepherd. The dog had gotten out the day before and while that wasn't unusual, this time he hadn't come back. Steve tried not to show it, but he was near tears. We combed the woods on the west side of our subdivision for hours, going up one dirt trail and coming down the next, yelling, Rusty, here boy! Looking for the dog kept my mind off the pumpkin display, but only for a while. The talk of the pumpkin man was ever-present at school. He's got a real cool one today, Carol told me just a couple of days after I heard the pumpkin cry. It's creepy, like a werewolf or something. It really looks like it has a snout full of nasty teeth. Try sticking your hand in him, I suggested, brushing past. I'm serious, man, you should see this one. It's one of his best. A week passed and the October rains hit hard. The trees lost their leaves all at once and the ground was a mess of brown, soggy piles. Nobody visited the pumpkin man for a couple days as the rains kept us dodging from car to school and back again. When it all passed and the days grew dry, the winds picked up and the days grew ever darker. Winter was just around the corner and we pulled out our heaviest, ugliest coats to hide from the chill. My bike hadn't been out of the garage in almost two weeks. Let's go see what the pumpkin man's been up to, Billy said one day after class. It was just before Halloween and everyone eagerly assented, except for Steve and me. Steve's dog had never turned up and he hadn't talked much once it became clear that Rusty wasn't coming back. And I hadn't been to the corner of Fifth and Maple since the day after I'd held the shard of a bleeding pumpkin in my hand. But it was a rare sunny day and Billy and Carol and Dan were almost running for the bike rack. Steve and I followed but didn't say much. We pedaled past the towering pile of soggy leaves and the wind shifted, blowing a crisp reminder of early winter across our necks. 
I shivered and pumped my feet harder to keep up. Good to see you boys, the pumpkin man said in a voice sharp as cat claws as we walked up to the display of carved gourds. Which of my little beauties would you like to take home today? Despite the light of the waning afternoon sun, I thought the pumpkin seemed unusually grim. There was a darkness behind all of those razor-shorn eyes and a hunger in their ragged, sharp-edged teeth. Their hollowness called out to be filled, called out for blood. A chill shivered my spine at thought. Got any vampire pumpkins? Carl said, and the man laughed. Can't say that I've killed me any of those. Have you ever tried to carve a Freddy Krueger pumpkin? Billy ventured. The pumpkin man shook his head and clouds of wispy hair flickered at his temples. I only carve from real life, he said. See this one? He pointed at a rat-faced pumpkin, much like the one I'd noticed almost three weeks before. This one was a recent creation, but still ageing fast. Its teeth curved inward and a faint scum of mould covered the dark spots on the surface of its skin. Soon it would cave in on itself in decay. I used a squirrel for this one, he said. Note the teeth. We nodded at his ingenuity and stepped away. Maybe we all felt a little creeped out by a man who dedicated his life to carving pumpkins. And then Steve stopped at one of the newer creations, the one that, despite its round, vein surface, seemed to have long, canine teeth and a snout. It's just like Rusty, he breathed. I saw the wetness in his gaze and punched him in the shoulder. It's a pumpkin. I used a dog for that one, the pumpkin man called. Steve choked and balled his fists. Come on, I said, and pushed him to leave. The others followed. Behind us, I heard the pumpkin man start to whistle. I don't know what he does, I told Steve later, as we sat by the tree in his front yard. My butt was cold and damp from the leaves, but we didn't retreat to the warmth of his house. We had secrets to share. I was there looking at the pumpkins, I said. It was the day Rusty disappeared. I heard a screech like something was dying. When I went to look, I saw him carving a pumpkin. And when I picked up what he threw away from it, my hand was covered in blood. Something's not right about the pumpkin man. Let's check it out, Steve said. What do you mean? Tonight, let's see how he does it. His eyes glimmered with unshed tears and he turned away. I knew he was thinking about Rusty. All I could think about was the spine-curling scream of a mutilated pumpkin. We left our bikes at the Thompsons, two houses away from the vacant lot, which was now filled with pumpkins. It was dark after 8pm and the moon was nowhere to be found. I shivered beneath the heavy down of my olive green coat. I'm not even sure if it was because of the cold. We threaded our way between the piles of warted squash and miniature gourds and beach ball-sized carving pumpkins. We stepped carefully, not wanting, the not wanting the crunch of gravel to give us away. In moments, we were face to face with the blazing wall of flaming, smoking faces. The rat-faced pumpkin seemed even more shriveled than this afternoon, the curl of its teeth leaving it looking gummy, geriatric. The snarling, dog-faced gourd caught Steve's eye again and I had to pull him away. Come on, I said, he'll be back here. We stepped around the back of the pumpkin shed the same way I had two weeks before, but this time the pumpkin man was nowhere to be seen. The carving table was there, unused in the midst of the empty clearing. Maybe he's back here, Steve whispered, pointing to a small pickup truck trailer. You couldn't see the pickup from the street with all the pumpkins and the display shed, but it was now obvious how the pumpkin man got around. He could pack everything into the truck and then sleep in it as well. Steve stole around the side of the truck and disappeared into the shadows. I waited for him to round the other side of the rusting hulk of a vehicle, but he didn't reappear. The night only grew more still. Then something snapped. I froze. From nearby, I heard a now familiar whistle. 
This time I recognised the tune. It was Nowhere Man by the Beatles. I retreated from the pickup until the rear wall of the display stand was at my back. That's when I saw him. The pumpkin man sauntered around the side of the truck where I had been expecting to see Steve. Something was clutched in his arms. It was covered in a brown blanket or tarp. He kept whistling, seemingly calm, but whatever he had trapped was wrestling and kicking like hell. He dragged the covered form over to the table, sat down and with one hand scooped up a pumpkin and set it on the table. With the other, he forced the form in the blanket down on the table next to the gourd. I'm not clear exactly what happened then. It was dark and the pumpkin man's back was to me and I was scared. But I know this. From the depths of the night, I heard Steve cry my name. And then the pumpkin man's arm raised up high in the air. When it came down, a flash of silver against the sky, I heard the most piercing scream I've ever heard in my life before or since. The blanket thrashed and kicked against the pumpkin man's body as he wedged it tight to the pumpkin on the table and dug his blade into the gourd again and again. Dark shapes flew in the air as he gouged chunks from the pumpkin and tossed them aside. On the table, a new face took shape and I struggled to keep my teeth from chattering as I watched him draw eyes and a smile that were hauntingly familiar. The light was poor and the pumpkin man's back hid his work, for the most part, from my spying eyes. But when the screaming faded to gasps and the pumpkin man dropped his now still blanket of inspiration, I saw a shrieking face more horrible than any of the laughing, scowling faces on the stand directly behind me. On this pumpkin, captured in abject terror, the pumpkin man had carved Steve's crying face. I never saw Steve again. The kids at school talked the next day about the amazing new pumpkin that the pumpkin man had on display, but I didn't go to see it. I already knew what it would look like. The police came to our house on Halloween night and asked if we had any knowledge of Steve's disappearance. They asked when I'd last seen him and wrote carefully in their notebooks when I told them that we'd been at the pumpkin man's just two nights before and that the pumpkin man had carved Steve's face into one of his creations. Had carved Steve. They didn't believe me. I knew that they wouldn't. Even my parents shook their heads. That's why I didn't even bother to go to my dresser where the shriveling shard of a pumpkin triangle rested, hidden away in my top drawer. I had picked it up from the ground the night the pumpkin man carved Steve into a pumpkin. I think he knew I was there that night. At one point, he looked over his shoulder and smiled a horrible toothy grin in my direction. He started whistling again then, as if he knew I could never do anything to stop him. And he was right. Who would believe a kid that says a pumpkin carver was killing stray dogs and children to make his grotesque creations all the more real? But I still have that last piece of Steve they'll never find, shriveled like leather in my drawer. Its sunset skin is still faintly smeared by a dull, violent red. Okay. (laughs) I don't think I've ever said the word pumpkin as many times in my life. Okay, that was pretty long, so... I think we're going to go straight on to this week's crafting corner. So this week um, I made car air fresheners. Um, Like me, do you hate those fake pine air fresheners? Can't stand sickly fruity scents or that so-called new car smell? Well, this is the tutorial for you. I have such a sensitive sense of smell. Sensitive sense of smell. (laughs) Okay, and find most chemical scents to be overwhelming, so much so that they make me feel nauseous, headachey, and even stressed out. Being trapped in an enclosed space such as the bus, like for two hours with someone's sickly perfume, is like actual torture. 
So I never buy car air fresheners, but I do love essential oils. I've built up my collection over the years and I use them for so many things. I make my own kitchen disinfectant, pillow sprays, therapeutic roller blends and more. The possibilities are endless with essential oils. They can be expensive, so the one I recommend starting out with is lavender. Its list of uses goes on and on. Ginger is really useful for travel sickness or any kind of nausea. Lemon and tea tree are great disinfectants. Um, but always start out using less drops and build as you need. So for the car air, fre air fresheners, you need a few things. Unpainted and unvarnished wooden shapes. Uh, they're used for crafting and I got mine in the works for a few euro. Twine or ribbon, the aforementioned essential oils, a scissors and a glue gun. The glue gun is optional depending on your, the shapes you buy. Um, I ended up having to use my glue gun because the wooden shapes I bought were too small and flimsy to dangle nicely. They were basically far too light. So I solved this problem by gluing several of them together. I bought some autumnal wooden shapes and also ones shaped as letters so I could personalise them. Um, if you buy the larger shapes, you won't need a glue gun unless you want to embellish them. You also need to buy shapes with holes or gaps in them large enough to thread twine. Um, but you could try gluing the twine on either. Or if you're handy with a drill, you can drill a little hole in the top. Uh, for mine, I made a couple for family and one for myself. So after gluing the desired shapes together, I cut a length of twine, about 16 inches, and looped through the top of the wooden shape. I tied a regular knot in the top and then took my chosen essential oils and applied a drop of each to the wood. And I let that soak in. Um, that turned out to not be enough. So once that was dry, I just added more. And you can keep doing that until you get the, the desired effect. Because it will soak into the unvarnished wood. Um, and then when you put the twine on, it just looks really rustic and nice. And you could, you could use markers or paint. Well, not paint. You could use markers to colour the shapes. Um, Anything that doesn't have a waterproof finish that will, won't stop the oils from soaking in. But I do like the rustic look of the unfinished wood. Uh, so let the oil dry and that's it. And you can just hang it from your rearview mirror. You can use a single oil or a combination of two or three. Sometimes just one is nice as it's uncomplicated and not overpowering. But if you're going to combine two or more and don't know much about them, you can look it up online, what scents go together, basically what fragrance families go together and also which oils to use for a desired effect so you might want peppermint for alertness lavender for calm or ginger for if you tend to get travel sick when the scent starts to fade simply reapply and they're really nice decorations and make make nice little gifts for family and friends and they're cheap to make um so this week's writing desk this week's tip comes from the American writer Kurt Vonnegut, um, Eight Rules for a Great Story, and I'm just going to read one of them, and that's, he says, Write to please just one person. If you open a window and make love to the world, so to speak, your story will get pneumonia. This is great advice. Every story I've ever started with an imagined audience in mind has failed or stalled and taken ages to finish. You need to have some idea of who you're writing for, but for your own sake, when you actually sit down to write, just pretend you're speaking to a single person. This can be real or imagined. Sometimes imagined is better because writing to a real person can inhibit your writing, especially if you're of the people pleaser type. You don't need to make up an entire character. It's more of a general thing. In my mind, I'm writing to a hazy figure that never really takes form. It could even be me. I don't know. It feels more directional, um, kind of like reading aloud. 
but you can create whatever audience of one works for you. Block out the rest, all the other voices, except those of your characters, and you will write genuinely. Even in my 30s, I'm still learning to do this. It's hard to keep the riffraff out of your head at times, but sometimes it can be helpful to have a trusted person read your draft if you feel like you're floundering or that what you're writing is maybe pushing the envelope a little too much. Usually it's never as cringeworthy as it sounds in your own head, unless you're a terrible writer, of course, but most bad writers are just still learning. It's a lifelong craft, a journey you never come to the end of, but that's a good thing. Watching your writing develop as years go by is very rewarding. So close that window and keep your story from getting pneumonia. Speaking of Vonnegut, I actually found the cult classic Slaughterhouse-Five for four euro in a secondhand bookshop uh, near where I lived the other day. And I also found Stephen King's Different Seasons, and that was three euro. It's one of the books that are missing from my King collection. So that was, there were two great finds. So yeah, visit your secondhand bookstores, definitely. Um, Let me see. I'm not sure if I have time for this week's. Okay, I'm going to give you a quick reading rec. So I've been reading Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items by J.W. Ocker. Um, I just finished this uh, over the past week. It's a great resource to find out about cursed objects all in one place. Ocker's style is light and humorous and very entertaining to read. The entries are short, four pages at most, so it's it's good to read in bite-sized pieces. Um, especially before bed, like, you know, you get three or four cases in before bed and it's just like some light reading. It's split into chapters that group objects by category, like cursed under glass, cursed in stone and the business of cursed objects. I've learned of many cases from this book I was unaware of or objects I'd heard about but didn't know the history of. Cursed objects include statues, jewellery, furniture, tombs, boxes, vases and of course dolls. It wouldn't be cursed objects without dolls. I got my copy on loan from my local library but you can buy it for about 17 euro online and it's a hardback book. Um, I might just have time to actually read one quick entry and this is titled Rudolph Valentino's Ring. So the actor Rudolph Valentino. His name was Rodolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Filibert. And that actually goes on for another three names that I won't say. Film fans know him as Rudolph Valentino, one of the original stars of silent film in the 1920s. Paranormal fans know him for his cursed ring which is said to have caused his death at age 31 and the subsequent deaths of nearly everyone who slipped a finger into its negative space afterward. Valentino was born in 1895 in Italy and came to the United States at the age of 18 to find a job. And man did he. Four years after arriving at Ellis Island, he moved to the opposite coast to jumpstart a movie acting career, back in the days when that was an experimental and somewhat disreputable career path. After a series of bit parts and bad guy roles, Valentino quickly ascended the end credits to top billing. He was nicknamed the Latin Lover and accreted a rabid fan base. Upon his death, about 100 grief-stricken admirers and curious onlookers clogged the Manhattan streets surrounding his funeral. They say his death even caused a few suicides of people who didn't want to live in a Valentino-less world. At some point, the A-lister picked up a ring in San Francisco. It was an ornate gold circlet bearing a large brown cat's eye stone, sometimes called tiger's eye, in its centre. According to the story, the vendor advised Valentino against buying the ring because of all the harm it had inflicted on previous owners. 
but Valentino purchased it anyway. He hadn't crossed an ocean and climbed the heights of stardom in a burgeoning industry set to take over the world just to be told what he couldn't buy with his Hollywood paychecks. In August 1926, Valentino was staying in Manhattan after the premiere of what would be become his best-known movie, The Son of the Sheik, in which he played two roles, a father and son. He was in his room with a now-defunct Ambassador Hotel when he felt a pain in his gut. He was taken in for surgery for what turned out to be a perforated stomach ulcer. This didn't kill him, though. He died about a week later from complications of the surgery. According to the story, he was wearing the ring at the time the pain started. After his death, the ring went to Paula Negri, a Polish actress who had been romantically involved with Valentino in the past. She showed up at his funeral with her press agent, claimed that she was Valentino's fiancée, and sent a massive floral arrangement of red and white roses that spelled out her first name for the inevitable newspaper photos of the sad event. She also put on an Oscar-winning performance of Grief that climaxed with her fainting atop Valentino's coffin. Soon after the ring came into her possession, Negri grew seriously ill. She eventually recovered and passed the ring on to its next victim, Russ Colombo. Colombo, a handsome musician and singer known as Radio's Valentino, seemed the perfect mark for his namesake's ring, and he indeed died under strange circumstances in 1934. He was shot in the face by Lansing Brown, a longtime friend of his. Brown testified that he was playing around with a firearm and a match. Don't ever do that. And the gun went off into his friend. The death was ruled an accident. Next, the ring went to a friend of Colombo's, one who didn't shoot him, named Joe Casino. He was hit and killed by a truck and the ring passed hands to Casino's brother. Nothing bad happened to him, but that might be because the ring was stolen from his house by a burglar named James Willis. He set off an alarm during the break-in, and before he could flee, the police showed up and shot him dead. Valentino's ring was supposedly in his pocket. The ring's fifth victim was a young actor named Jack Dunn, who was tapped to play Valentino in a biopic. After wearing the ring, Dunn contracted a blood disease and died before shooting even began. Today, nobody knows where the ring is. Dunn was its last known victim. Rumour has it that Valentino's ring was hidden away in a safety deposit box in Los Angeles, not far from his final resting place in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. I've actually been to his his grave in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Um, however, some say that it was stolen from said safety deposit box, so it may be even more missing than we think. And maybe that's a good thing. As for the evidence that the ring existed in the first place, Valentino can be seen wearing a ring on his right pinky in the 1922 movie, The Young Raja. But it's difficult to see, and no one knows whether it belonged to him or was supplied by the costume department. A possibly relevant ring appears in an oil painting by Spanish artist Federico Beltran Massis, commissioned by Paula Negri after Valentino's death. The focal point of the painting is the rectangular brown stone on Negri's hand, spotlighted in the otherwise dim image that shows Valentino fading into navy blue darkness, his eyes closed and his arms wrapped around a guitar. But perhaps the best evidence of the cursed ring of Rudolf Valentino shows up in the catalogue for his estate after his death. On page 81, among other rings of various stonage, is a short, innocent-looking entry for a honey cat's eye ring. The word cursed does not appear in the copy. Yeah, so it's a fun little book to read and you can kind of dip in and out of it. Um, it gets you in the Halloween spirit of things. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. Um, 
it'll be available as a podcast on Mixcloud over the next couple of days. If you keep an eye on my Instagram page for updates, it's at the craft with Carol. That's Carol spelled C-A-R-O-L-E at the craft with Carol. Uh, thanks for to Belfield FM for hosting me again. Um, I'll see you the same time next week. Until then, keep yourself cozy, spooky and inspired. <laughs>